you're probably wondering, what in the hell is that music? Where's that from? It's actually from the Riddick series. Yep, I dug deep on that one. You are listening to a Rattledgem Broadcasting Network production of Simply the Best, movie franchise podcast on the internet on a Thursday night at 9 o'clock. This is The Long Road to Ruin, and I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, the wordsmith himself, Mr. Sean Comer, and you're not. How do you do, sir? I am indeed, Sean. You are indeed not, and you are indeed listening to our show. And uh, as I said, we are discussing the Chronicles of Riddick franchise tonight in my quest to watch movies that are not based on comic books or meant for children. I am uh, digging into digging into the into uh, the deep here, trying to find series of movies that I haven't actually seen before and, and broaden my horizons, expand my view, try new things. And uh, I, I, I know that this is a big underground hit. Um, it, uh, the first one, Pitch Black, spawned two sequels based on the strength of uh, DVD rentals and purchases. So I said, well, you know, again, I'm going to try something new. I'm going to try a new flavor of ice cream here and see what it's all about. And now that I have, I have only one question. Why is this a thing? Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> so we're going to talk about one really good movie uh, and another movie which had a lot of potential and fell flat on its face and a third movie that I haven't seen. That's how tonight's show is going to go. Are you prepared, Sean? Are you ready to, are you ready to rumble? This franchise was also a great exercise in seeing what kind of title card Ben Cologne could come up with on short notice. <laughs> yes. Shout out to Ben Cologne, who uh, was, was who uh, asked me what the schedule was, then produced our uh, title card for the Mighty Ducks, and I said, "This is great. We'll use it in December when the show is." And he said, "No." <laughs> um, but bravo, bravo to uh, Ben, another fine title card. So, um, Pitch, uh, Pitch Black, starring Vin Diesel. Oh, good old Mumbles himself, directed by David Hoffey, uh, came out in uh, 2000. It was a February release, which means no one was meant to see it. Um, there's two versions of it. We have a theatrical cut, and then uh, 109 minutes, and then an unrated version, which is the one that I saw uh, on Amazon Prime, which comes in at 112. Um, it had a $23 million budget, and the box office was about $53.1 million. As I said, it wasn't exactly a hit in the theaters, but uh, on the strength of its on the strength of its afterlife on DVD, uh, it developed a cult following. Or I should say, Vin Diesel's character Riddick developed a following, and it spawned two sequels. So let's get into it. Um, it I tell you, this, <clears throat> this franchise is very uneven um, because Pitch Black is one kind of movie, and The Chronicles of Riddick is a wholly different kind of movie with the same handful of characters. And then allegedly Riddick is a, is a retelling of the first movie, is, is how it was told to me. Would you agree? Uh, somewhat. I'm not sure really how accurate calling Riddick a retelling of the first movie is, but it is kind of jarring to go from a movie that's kind of cut from the alien cloth, uh, specifically the Ridley, the Ridley Scott cloth, and then transition from that into what might as well be Scorpion King in space. <laughs> the Scorpion King in space. Yeah, 
Scorpion King had a plot I could follow. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll get to that. I, I I don't feel like it was entirely necessarily the plot that was the problem with Chronicles of Riddick. I feel like it was more so the way the plot was presented. Yeah, when we get to it, I will uh, I will sort of explain my thoughts on how right, the thing was constructed. We also need to explain that David Tui, sorry, it's such a fun name to say, uh, David Tui and Vin Diesel, and I believe Universal, are all on board to make at least two more Riddick movies, I believe. Oh, good. Maybe maybe in the fourth one, uh, they can tell an original. They can tell an original story that isn't, uh, you know, that, that isn't a handful of plot lines all mashed together. Well, but you know what? For me, there's a subtle silver lining there. Uh, a couple of them actually. Number one, I think I appreciate Vin Diesel a little more than most do, because I have my reasons. <laughs> but also, uh, there's the fact that Chronicles of Riddick did actually give the world a little bit of a blessing, and that is the fact that um, the tying game, Escape from Butcher Bay, was really mm-hmm. quite good. Uh, that, that, was kind of a, that was kind of a gem of its console generation, if not kind of an underappreciated one. So that would mark, I think, only about the uh, second, maybe third time that a tie-in game has actually been better than the source material it was based on? Because the only other one I'm coming up with is Green Lantern Rise of the Manhunters. And I'm waiting, I'm waiting any second now for someone to chime in with something else that I'm forgetting. So, (laughs) come come on, Starcher, Andrew, Ben, Robert, one of you people, don't let me down. Um, So let's get into the plot of this thing. Um, basically what we have here is that it, we're in the not-too-distant future where space travel is a common AD. We have a situation where uh, we have a transport ship uh, bringing, um, to, uh, bringing uh, folks who are making a pilgrimage to New Mecca. We've got, um, we've got folks who are antiquities dealers. We've got uh, bushwhackers, as they're called. And then we have an alleged law enforcement officer, I say alleged because there will be a reveal later on in the movie, who is transporting uh, criminal Richard B. Riddick, who is played by, of course, Vin Diesel. Um, their, their ship is uh, hit by a comet tail. Uh, it suffers damage. They end up crashing. Now, an important thing to know at this point is in order to stop from crashing, uh, the uh, pilot who is played by Rada Mitchell, I believe, uh, makes an interesting mm-hmm. choice. Carolyn Fry, she, she's going to dump the passengers who are in cryostasis. Fuck um, <laughs> them. Uh, pretty much her. <laughs> I want to live, goddammit. Uh, Not so much passengers as ballast, you know. Yeah. Uh, the, the, um, the captain of this here vessel... You, 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 you murderer. <laughs> you can't do that. They somehow <laughs> managed to not crash on the planet uh, as such. Um, you know, they, they hit it hard, but not, you know, hard, hard enough that the ship is not reusable, but not hard enough that anyone... Uh, you, you, you know what? Really for, 
pro tip in any sci-fi pro tip in any sci-fi movie. Never ever tell the pilot you can't do that because basically the response you're going to get back is some iter- is some iteration or another of challenge accepted. <laughs> well, hell, I can't. They will complete. They will completely misunderstand it as a dare. Um. So it's actually the co-pilot, uh, Simon Burke's Greg Owens co-pilot, who stops Fry from the kick, who stops Fry from ditching all the passengers in order to save the ship. Um, well, he dies. <laughs> he dies in the crash, uh, and um, everyone wakes up. And what happens is they land on a desert planet, and they are it's surrounded by a handful of stars, suns, um, and so. There's no there's no nighttime at least not for a while and so it becomes nope. uh, immediately it becomes a sort of thing where what they think is the immediate threat is Riddick you know who uh, at various points in the movie they have tied to something they just, you know they're like oh my god we're trapped on this we're trapped on this desert planet with with the psycho killer and I, I mentioned to uh, a group that I'm friendly with. Uh, on, through Facebook Messenger, I said, this is a weird movie. And I said that because, and I, at least in the version that I saw, there would be these weird cuts, these weird edits, where you would see someone who you thought was in peril from Vin Diesel, and it turns out they're not. <laughs> so there's something else happening, and he's just, like, just out of frame. And then they would, like, it was almost shot like found footage, but it's not a found footage movie in any way, shape, or form. It's just it was weird mm-hmm. camera angles, weird shooting, and weird edits. And the one that struck me, and I think this is where I made the comment, um, you see Vin Diesel. He's, like, hiding behind a rock. Fry's got his back to him, and he's got a knife. And you're like, oh, my God, he's about to stab that woman. It's like a slasher movie. And he cuts off a bit of her hair. He then sniffs it and blows it away as she walks away. I'm like, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> but my favorite one is there's another bit where where's Riddick? Well, we're all gonna die. He's gonna get us, and like he's sitting under an umbrella, appears to be sipping a margarita or something. You know, <laughs> like mm. no one sees him sitting on you know sitting on this thing up high uh, underneath and just chilling underneath an umbrella. I love that. <laughs> sure, why not? Um. So, so as they're dealing with him, and, and there's an insistence by uh, Cole Hauser, who plays William J. Johns, who is the um, quote-unquote the law enforcement officer in charge of transport of uh, Riddick. You know, he's insisting, no, 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 he's a bad guy. You can't trust him. And um, so, so well, the morphine to, junkie. Well, I'm getting to that. <laughs> that, that, that. That comes later. Um, what we find out about Riddick is that uh, while he was in prison, he had a doctor, quote-unquote, do a shine job on his eyes. He can see in the dark, basically, um, which is why he has to wear the glasses out in the sunlight because his eyes are now adjusted to, permanently adjusted to the dark uh, and are sensitive to light, which becomes important later on in the movie. So anyway, they, they decide more, more, more often than not they need his help, and they're going to decide to trust him, which the, uh, which the officer doesn't like. Um, Things start to heat up when one of the characters, who we're going to name Pig Hostage because I don't feel like looking this up, um, decides, uh, looks into a hole and gets eaten. 
And first they think it's Riddick, and then they're like, and then they they realize that it's not. After Fry goes and investigates and realizes there'd be monsters in the deep, um, monsters living underneath the surface of this desert planet. Not too long after that, they find out that uh, nighttime is coming. It's going, and it's going to be a great long darkness. And when that happens, the beasties currently living in the shadows will come out to hunt, and they're all dead. So it becomes a race Mostly. against time. <laughs> it becomes a race against time to find, which they do, you know, find supplies enough to uh, to get a ship, to get that ship uh, off the planet, and get home. And they need to do this before the dark comes. And and that's pretty much the movie. Once all that gets set up, it's uh, they 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 run out of time. Uh, darkness comes. The monsters come out to hunt. And then it's a and then it's a race to the ship to get off the planet in the dark, and that's where Vin Diesel really becomes the uh, the hero of this thing in a way. He uh, he ha- he sort of has to he his character sort of argues with itself, um, and as much as he just wants to look at, look after himself and leave these people behind, there's a conscience somewhere deep in there. Uh, that doesn't allow him to do that, and he continues to help as many of them that, that manage to live through this experience, which, at the end of the day, is all of two other people. You have uh, a boy who is not a boy, whose, whose name is actually Jack, um, and she's a girl, played by Rihanna Griffith. Um, mm-hmm. this, this becomes important in the second movie. <laughs> and uh, then you have uh, Keith David, who is a Muslim preacher. And they're the only two people who lived through this thing. And that's the mm-hmm. short, short version of this. Uh, the one thing I thought was interesting, and I'm gonna, I'll throw it over to you, Sean, is it's very much centered on Vin Diesel. It's very much centered on Vin Diesel's Riddick. But I, you're not whistling. There's a siren. It's good. Um, uh, no, no, no. I'm, I, I'm, I'm kind of broadcasting tonight from the patio of the Fortress of Shonitude, and wait for it, yes, that is indeed an ambulance. Okay, I just like, why are you whistling over me? And I'm like, oh wait, that's a siren. Uh, Oh, oh, come on, I I wouldn't do that. (laughs) I know you wouldn't, that's why I'm like, that can't possibly, you can't possibly be whistling. Nah, Um, nah, I even even retired the wrong song for you. You did, you did, you're a good boy. Um, So, yeah, uh, Oh yeah, a lot of this is focused on Riddick, um, who's your big beefy, you know, manly superhero in this thing. But what I thought was interesting, and something I definitely want to spend some time talking about, is the character played by Rada Mitchell, Carolyn Fry, who, who, as I said, this wasn't. I'm going to use the word interesting again, for lack of a better word. Um, it, it was an interesting take on a character. Um, you know, early on in the movie, she nearly sacrifices all the passengers, and then at the end of the movie. She's having this uh, crisis of conscience where uh, Riddick is like, just fuck them, leave them, who cares? You know, at this point, almost everyone's dead. They're not going to make it either. Just get on the ship and let's get out of here. And her crisis of conscience is so bad, she, it won't let her. And I feel like she, more than anything else, is the hero of this thing, more so than him. Like, he's, you know, he's the Chewbacca to her, uh, to her hand solo, in a way. And then she dies, For all that sacrifice, for all that time spent on this character and her psychology and, you know, and the pain that she goes through and the relationship she has with 
the cult with uh, William John's character, who uh, you know, who turns out to be the villain of this thing that isn't a monster, sort of speak. For her to just up and die at the end of the movie so suddenly, I was like, "Well, that's an interesting choice." So, um, my, my my initial take on the movie: very interesting choices with the characters, um, lots of twists and turns. For uh, for a movie that definitely sort of mimics a lot of the beats of uh, um, James Cameron, James Cameron, is that right? Alien. Uh, well, depend, that, that depends on which movie you're talking about. Are you talking about the first one? Yeah. Alien was Ridley Scott. James Cameron directed Ridley. Aliens, plural. Okay. Um, Ridley, okay. That's why I asked. Ridley Scott's Alien, um, it definitely, I think, has its own identity. And and for, for everything working against it, it's a damn good movie. Mm-hmm. It, it definitely is. And as far as the decision to... Uh, to kill Fry off. In a way, I kind of get that from a standpoint of if you're thinking about it in terms of the movie itself and its character and your investment in the character. Because by that point, you have to remember, she spent the entire movie surrounded by grisly, grisly death. A great deal of it she caused by deciding that the passengers were little more than luggage that screamed when you kicked them out the door. <laughs> so, and she's the one who lived, who survived, but if she were to live through that, what kind, what would she really be sort of going home to? What, what, what would she be living on for? She'd probably be haunted for the rest of her life by everything that she had witnessed around her and everything that she had done. And clearly, she's not made of the same kind of survivalist metal as Riddick himself is, or even that or even that Johns is, really. So, in a way, it kind of makes sense that she would be so willing to be the one to throw herself on the grenade, so to speak, to try to go back and make sure that Riddick is able to get himself to get himself onto the ship and to save as many people as she possibly could. Because she's a woman who feels like she's got nothing to lose. So I get that. And I, I kind of understand that part of it. Um, it's in, but I mean, but, I thought, but, but go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, um, but you kind of mentioned that, uh, we, and we talked before about how this has a lot of the same, if not the same DNA as Alien. Alien is at least a a common distant ancestor, and you know, I actually saw this before I saw the first Alien movie. Uh, I, I saw it in I saw it in theaters, which I think made it even more fun. And it's having it be so low budget and so comparatively restrained. Obviously, it's still a lot of CGI, mind you. I get that. Lots of fancy, flashy effects. True, but compared to a lot of other sci-fi horror movies and a lot of other sci-fi adventures. This is downright subtle. 
It's, sure. it's, it's, it's pretty basic, really. It's restrained. And, I, I like that restrained. word. Yes, that's a, that's a very good word. Uh, it, has, it has a share of gore. It has, it has its scares. But what I like so much about it is that it keeps the focus nice and narrow. It keeps the stakes high, but it's very focused. It's I like very. Sorry, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's 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 extremely tense, and it's it's a survival story where you're watching these people and wondering, okay, they've got nothing in the way of resources at their disposal. How in the world are they gonna are they gonna make it through this? And maybe I'm a little bit partial because, no big secret, I'm also a very big gamer, and one of my favorite genres is, well, survival horror. I love the better of the Resident Evil games. I love the first four Silent Hill games, uh, The Last of Us, Alien Isolation, uh, just a few examples of it. But it really doesn't need to blow you away with its budget. And I think that at that time, when that when that hit theaters, it was really a breath of fresh air. It's it's downright indie, is, is what it is. And it feels weird to say that about something that's still done so much on a computer effects suite. But it's something that the second movie really kind of strayed too far away from for its own good, in my opinion. Um, do we kind of want to talk about what, about why Vin Diesel really suits this so well? Um, yeah, I do. But b- before we get into that, I wanted I wanted to talk about uh, something that you mentioned in, in as far as stakes and tension. Um, part of the reason why I, why I think I, ta- I was able to really tap into this movie, I didn't get bored with it, and uh, I actually felt for the characters was I didn't nobody in this movie to me other than the one guy who's supposed to be the villain and even then he it's a it's a subtle thing um, was so was over the top or ridiculous or silly or you know nobody enters Reggie the Reckless territory um, everybody you know there's there's something good and there's something salvageable about all the characters so no so mm-hmm. so. Right there, you want them all to live. You're not cheering for the monsters. Which, you know, in a lot of the movies mm-hmm. that we've talked about between you and I or myself and Robert when we review um, new movies is they make the characters so bad and so dumb and, and, the, and, and the choices that they make are so stupid that you're just like, yeah, get them. Kill them. Uh, you know? John's, is, John's is really about the closest you get to somebody where when he where you just kind of smirk a little bit when he gets his. But that's the thing is like, he, he makes it, he makes a choice to partner up with diesel to kill uh, Jack. And, mm-hmm. and then he, you know, and he immediately gets his. And it's like, so he had it coming and that's that. Yeah. And that's satisfying. But it was a moment in the movie, not the whole movie long. Number one. Number two. Again, this movie isn't chock full of people you just want to see thrown to the, you know, thrown to the animals, uh, like no, you do in no. so many other movies. So that was nice. <laughs> you know, that was 
that that was a change from from very from a lot of movies. But also, it helped with the tension of the scene. Again, it was shot in a very interesting way. Sometimes they used a lot of very tight shots. So when something came into frame, um, there was a good scare there. But again, since you don't want to see the people eaten by the monsters, um, you know, it, it helped the tension of the scene. Because a lot of times the tension can be completely let out of a scene when you're just like, please kill this person. You know, and so you so the one sequence that I'm that I'm thinking about is when Fry goes to investigate in the tunnel, and she you know she suddenly realizes that she's surrounded by monsters, uh, and so she's trying to climb out, and they're pulling her down, and they you know the, the monsters are pulling her down, the people are trying to pull her out, and she can't get the thing off her belt, and you're like, oh, is she gonna buy it now? Because you don't. You don't realize that she's the other star of this movie until about midway through, because there's so much other stuff no. going on with the other characters. So, um, mm-hmm. what do I mean? It's 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 very uh, it's very mysterious how they lay how they laid this movie out. It was almost it was like watching sort of dinner theater or you know a uh, a murder mystery where they sort of lay out, here are all the characters. Now, which one's the hero? You don't know. Which one's the murderer? You don't know yet. You have to kind of wait and see how things play out, rather than your standard movie that sort of beats you over the head with, you know, here's villain McTorley mustache, and here's Harold McMuscles, and, you know, and here's, you know, Judy Damsel in stress. Like, all right, we got for, it. Take the for, for movies of around that time, it kind of reminds me of the first Resident Evil movie, in that sense, actually. Mm-hmm. With, with, with so many of the twists and turns and the the looming mystery over, over like you said, sort of what everybody's role is and kind of mm-hmm. what their agenda is throughout the movie. Uh, and I say that in a nice way because for everybody out there that I'm sure uh, would want to kick me square in the daddy bag for saying this, I like the first Resident Evil movie. I think that and the third one were the best of the entire series. Um, in fact, I think I think the first one had a lot of potential to make a really good franchise, and I actually think this kind of played that out a lot better because anybody who's who's seen Resident Evil knows that that movie, unfortunately, for all the things I love about it, it really does evolve into a fumbling bullshit fest. Yeah, it does. <laughs> with, 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 so, with so many of the inconsistencies and the, oh, oh Paul, Paul W.S. Anderson, God bless you, you tried, but still, you still fucked the continuity pooch. Um, yeah, you did. But thank you. <laughs> yeah, one day we are going to have to slog through that entire franchise. You realize that, right? Agreed, sure. Um, one thing I want to add, I want to add before we move on. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it back to you after this. I enjoy the change in perspective. So you have Riddick who is constantly adjusting his glasses, um, depending on the light in the scene. Uh, you have the so you have his perspective, you have the normal perspective, and then you have the monster's perspective. What do the monsters see? So uh, it was in sort of an ode to Predator there. And I like that. Um, it's visually for a movie shot in a desert with, um, you know, with mo- with monotone colored monsters. I thought this was a very interesting looking movie. 
it it shocked me almost because I, again I'm just I'm you, films are there's not a lot of bravery in Hollywood to try new things and I thought that uh, David Hawkey, um really went out of his way to try some neat stuff uh, with this movie and I, I and I, and it made it stand out for me it's like I said um, I, I never intended to see Pitch Black saw it for the purposes of this podcast jumped up and became one of my favorite movies. I enjoyed it that much. But because mm-hmm. it looks different, oh, it looks different, it looks interesting, um, the characters are interesting, you know, like I said, they're not just, they're not just murder fodder. And, um, you know, and then, of course, our, our, our titular hero in this thing, our Mr. Muscles, Vin Diesel, um, he too, you know, for all the flack he gets as an actor, or lack of acting ability, for that matter, uh, I thought he portrayed this character with a with, with some depth. I, I thought there was some some layers to him, where you don't know you know where he's coming from at all you know at different parts of the movie. You on one minute he's and another at other times I would criticize the inconsistency, but this I thought lended itself well to the character that made him complex. So at one, you know at one time you have him saving these people, and another time he wants to leave them behind. You know one moment he's threatening, the other moment he's he, you know, he's sacrificing, you know, and it's like, you, and you really, I, I guess, you know, we were talking before, like, what was the big attraction to him? And I guess that's it, is he is very mysterious. You don't know where he's coming from with this. You just know that he's got a, he's got that sort of, you know, um, late WWE era, <laughs> 1980s wrestler charisma that you tap into and you're like, I'll follow you anyway, Vin Diesel, <laughs> lead the way. So, um so I, I don't have a whole lot more to say about it. I'm going to throw it over to you for some some, some more thoughts here. But that was sort of my impression of Pitch Black, a sort of out-of-left-field, interesting-looking, acted, uh, and written movie. Not a whole lot of complaints. Okay, well, I'm going to revisit this for anybody who didn't hear me already say it when we covered The Fast and the Furious. And actually, I'm going to elaborate on it with something that I feel might make the point a little bit more clearly. Mark, do you know what really irritates me most about when I, all the shade when of I the action you genre nowadays? What was that? <laughs> I, you asked, what, do you know what really irritates me? I cut you off instead of when I cut you off. Yeah, that too, actually. <laughs> I'm sorry, go on. Anyway, um, you know what really gets me about all the shades of the action genre where I think it's really failed the most over the course of the past, oh, to be generous and call it the past 20 years. What's that? It's the, it's the fact that the genre has been taken over by actors. Great actors, mind you. Spectacular performers who I have enjoyed in a number of movies. Uh, odd as it may sound to say, I don't hate Keanu Reeves. Definitely not. Nor do I hate Matt Damon. They're both outstanding, gifted performers in their own in their own rights. Love The Matrix. Love Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Love John Wick. I also love Rounders. I definitely, I definitely love Goodwill Hunting. Dogma, any number of other movies. But to use those two as an example, the problem is they're not people 
who, without a lot of work, could convince you that they could bust a grape in a food fight. They're just not even remotely convincing in terms of their presence, their natural demeanor, or even right down to right down to their bill. I mean, you have to you have to shove Matt like Damon and Keanu, and on the off occasion, some doofus decides to try like in Blood Diamond, um, fucking Leonardo DiCaprio. Or, if I'm thinking of Predators, uh, Adrian Brody or Topher Grace, through uh, something like six months of hardcore martial arts training, boot camp, and weight training, they have to practically live in the gym off egg whites and tuna. Whereas, on the other hand, you take a guy like Vin Diesel, who is never going to be mistaken for Patrick Stewart in any sense except for Barber. (laughs) And you put him in a role like this where all he has to do is just assume that kind of quiet but confident demeanor that just is so naturally him. It's a part of of his DNA. It was embedded in him from growing up in from growing up in the Bronx and starting out as a bouncer before he ever gave acting a thought. But the thing is, he's also such an intelligent guy that he knows how to really pick his shots and be judicious with what roles he takes. He knows how to really find that character, so to speak, and know just kind of how to apply that natural part of himself to it to keep it convincing. It's why he's so good at characters like Dick D. Riddick or Dominic Toretto or, as you and I were talking about before, uh, the guy he played even from Knockaround Guys. Just somebody that you can throw into a movie and for most of it, you're just marveling at how they're handling the maelstrom that's going on around them with so much uncanny cool and so much poise. But it just makes it mean that that much more in those scenes where they are finally motivated to explode and just rain down hell on anybody that's around them. And that's what he's so good at, and that's what's so underappreciated. It's not that he's a bad actor. It's just that he tends to stick to the roles that really suit him best. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, he's he's playing the course, he's staying the course, and sticking to what works. And undeniably, it works almost every time. Um, uh, like in this movie, you need somebody to play a convincingly dangerous-looking serial killer who can probably find a way to kill you nine times before you hit the ground. But somebody who's got no remorse, no conscience, and is just a cold-blooded survivalist who can do whatever needs to be done to make sure that he's the last man still breathing. Okay, and he does it perfectly. 
I I don't really get the flack that he gets. I mean, okay, so again, yeah, he's not Patrick Stewart. Okay. That's like <laughs> me taking a shit and then sniffing it and then getting mad that it doesn't smell like a Cinnabon. I, I mean, how can you get mad at something for not being what it was never meant to be? But I think that's also why <laughs> he, 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 he doesn't get nearly the credit that he deserves in terms of how thoughtful he is about that, too, because everybody forgets he's also a co-writer and producer on these who I think gets that character and kind of gets the limitations on it and gets where the character should go. It's just that, as we're about to find out with the next two movies we're going to talk about, he's got a lot of the right ideas and they're in the right place. It's just that in each movie, they're respectively presented in entirely the wrong ways, but in entirely different ways, too. Right. Um, in terms of uh, people getting mad, as you said, you know, Robert and I reviewed the Peanuts movie last night, and we took some time to talk about it, some wait, of the reviews. Oh, oh the, pe- the Peanuts movie. It, I kid you not, for a legitimate second, it sounded like you said the Penis movie. That, too. Um, that was a different review. <laughs> uh, the What's, Peanuts. What, what, what the hell? Which, which review was that? i gotta add, <laughs> I got to add your reviews back to my podcast rotation. Um, the Charles Schultz uh, Peanuts movie, and we were talking about some of the reviewers who got mad that basically the movie didn't try to experiment with some more modern ideas or try to elevate the product. And then we were like, Jesus, more, like that's not that's not a good review. Review the thing more as mo- it is more and, modern know, ideas. It's fucking yeah, like, like, they should have, like, like they should have done like a South Park basically and had the Peanuts comment on Twitter. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, no, 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 no! A thousand fucking times, no! I yeah, I, I you know you know what movie I remember was the very first exposure to the idea that Hollywood would do something so crass to an American classic. I swear it's not going to be what you're thinking it is. Um, do you remember? Do you remember the Leave It to Beaver movie? No. Oh, you lucky such and such. <laughs> okay, I, I I grew up on Le- on Leave It to Beaver, as a lot of people did in, that are my age in syndication. Um, it, it even before Nick at Night, it, it was on in reruns during the day back in Minnesota. So it was often part of my, you know, morning serial uh, and whatever viewing uh, during the summertime when, when, when little Sean was not being kept out of trouble in school. So, you know, I I grew up on definitely a very idealized image of it, and the the wholesomeness, the Americana, the purity, and then along comes this absolutely fucking weird-ass movie that, well, well, like you just put it, it basically took the cleavers and and just, just transported them. It, it, it like gave them this, this almost 
style makeover, but it was pre-South Park, as I recall. Or at least it was when South Park was fairly new. Um, you had stuff like um, wa- like Wally and the Beeve looking up porn. <laughs> I'm like, what? what? No! No! <laughs> I mean, it's, right. And you, you still see this, especially with movies like the Smurfs and Alvin and the Chipmunks and various and sundry, and sundry other abominations that should not be. But when it comes to the Peanuts, I mean, I'll, yeah, you know, I'll even throw the Muppets under the bus a little bit for this one. Because the other day I finally got to see an episode of the new ABC show. No, be careful. Uh, I love uh, that show. Uh, Uncle Mark... Why is Scooter being molested by Chelsea Handler? Because it's funny. What? <laughs> and it, it, it's funny you bring that up, and I don't want to get too far off topic here, but it, it, it's funny because I was willing to accept a modernization of the Muppets and not willing to accept a modernization of the Peanuts. And the, but I'll tell you the, diff, the reason why mm-hmm. um, I, I, I saw a difference here. And that is you're introducing Peanuts to largely an audience, children, who are not familiar with who the Peanuts are. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're talking a franchise that maybe if, if your parents made you watch some of the specials from, from ages past, you might have a passing familiarity with these characters. Um, but I mean, what kid is reading the funny papers these days? First of all, what kid even knows what the funny papers are? Newspapers are, are, are quickly going the way of the dinosaur. So... You know, I don't know too many kids uh, who this movie was intended for who who really have any kind of knowledge of what the Peanuts are, except for maybe, you know, my, they might have a passing uh, knowledge of what Snoopy is because they probably saw it on Facebook in a meme. Um, but other than that, how the fuck would they know? So, so right from the gate, I think you start with uh, an introduction to what the Peanuts are and make it true to, to what they've always been. Then after that, if you want to go and do something weird and modern with them, I'm okay with it if, if, you know, as long as you respect the material. The Muppets uh, have already had their reintroduction to the world. Several, as a matter of fact. But the most recent oh, one... Okay, touche, I'll give you that one. Uh, okay, you know, they allow had, me to put another way Hang on. They had the Muppet movie with What's-His-Face from uh, How I Met Your Mother, which sort of reintroduced that to the world. And it was very it was very much an ode to the original Muppet movie. And then they did the Muppets Most Wanted, which which I thought was hilarious, but it, but much like the great Muppet caper and the Muppets Stick Manhattan, it took the Muppets in a different direction. So, okay. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll throw, out, I'll throw uh, out a better example. What was the name of that absolutely horrid Looney Tunes action cartoon? Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> good question. Must have been so or, bad or, I didn't or, notice. Uh, or, 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 even, or even even better, um, the, the one where they tried to go the whole suburban route with the Looney Tunes and Lola <laughs> became a sex-crazed neighbor. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm sure it exists uh, if you're remembering it, but I don't remember this at all. And it's entirely... It's entirely possible that there were there were, um, there were Looney Tunes products that I probably caught, you know, in just a in just a passing, and thought it was so bad I shouldn't go back or I shouldn't think about it too long. 
Oh, th- thank God both that your kids have been spared this nonsense and that <laughs> you are not friends with a Western animation encyclopedia. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, because if if you if you ever want to hear what a nuclear apoplectic response from a Looney Tunes fan sounds like, ask Alexis about these the next time the next time we have her on for a guest spot. Okay. Uh, anything else here on Pitch Black? There's not. We probably we should probably move on to the uh, Chronicles of Good Old Rick. I think we've said all we need to say about this wonderful movie, except that in general, if you haven't seen it, by all means, track it down. I wouldn't go so far as to call it an all-time classic or anything, but um, a good survival site. Take it from a pansy like me. It wasn't... uh... It wasn't so scary that, you know, to, to be unappealing That's to people point. who aren't really yeah. Of horror. Uh, yeah, if, exactly. If Mark can get through it, it's it's probably pretty tame. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, by all, you, can put, you can probably find the DVD fairly cheap on Amazon or at your typical Bookman's or Hastings or wherever it is you happen to buy fine physical media in slightly used condition. Uh, or you can just go the go the more modern, convenient route and just go on Amazon Prime and look it up. But either way, I highly, highly recommend it. Next January, when we talk about The Hobbit, remind me to bring up this article about why Peter Jackson missed The Hobbit trilogy was a mess. Because it's <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, we have to. I, I know just the article you need. I got it bookmarked. Don't worry about it. Okay. All right. So let's move on to uh, the year was 2004, uh, month of June, shortly after my birthday. I was still living in New York at the time. Nobody gives a shit. Let's move on. Um, The Chronicles of Riddick comes out. uh, by Universal Pictures is distributed. Um, Budget somewhere between 105 to 120 million, not counting uh, marketing. Box office, it didn't quite do what it needed to do. Uh, came in at 115.8. However, it too had a second life on DVD, mm-hmm. uh, which spawned a, which spawned the third uh, sequel. Now, sort of. I'm going to hold my head and try to keep my eyeballs in it um, because trying to explain this cockamamie plot might have my eyeballs <laughs> flying out of my skull. Let me. Let me see if I can do this without having to actually read word the word verbatim from the wiki because this thing is so convoluted. Uh, it's five years after Riddick got off of uh, LV4218 or whatever the planet was called. And that's a joke. That's an alien joke, Sean. Get it? Huh? Huh? Get it? But um, Yes, Mark, you, I get it. <laughs> So it's five years later, and uh, and uh, bounty hunters are in hot pursuit of Riddick. He finds out after interacting with one particular set of bounty hunters that uh, the most recent bounty was placed on him by Keith, Keith David's imam character. So he goes to uh, New Mecca trying to find out what gets. After he saved this man's life, why would he do this? Um, now, here's, here's where I want to stop for just a moment. 
and, and make a comparison because this is one of my major problems with the movie. One of the things I really liked about Pitch Black. In Pitch Black, we have what appears to be a a society, a normal uh, ham and egg, every day, wake up, go to work, shut the fuck up kind of society, just set further along in the years where there's space travel. We're not living in... <laughs> We're not living in the Star Trek, you know, sort of uh, utopian universe. We're not living in the Star Wars fantasy universe. Um, we're not even necessarily living in the alien universe where everything seems to be run by the military. It's, it's just, you know, this happened to be the bus that everyone was on when it crashed kind of a thing. And that was one of the things that I liked about it. One of the things I liked about Riddick was that he wasn't really Superman. You know, he didn't have special powers. He wasn't Captain America. He was just a guy who could see in the dark, and he happened to have a, you know, a muscle or two. All right, cool. These are believable characters in, a, in, you know, in an amazing situation, which I liked. I liked that sort of gritty realism in a sci-fi, uh, in a sci-fi movie, sci-fi horror movie. And then we get to the Chronicles of Riddick, where they create this um, advancing army called the Necromonders, who are, uh, quote-unquote, a ghost army. And right there, I wanted to just hit my fucking desk over, t- toss my computer to the side, and be like, oh, I'm done with this already. Cause they, <laughs> they, took the, they took the world that they had created. As I said, just think of your world now, humdrum as it may be, and, and, and advance it so that you can uh, go through space. And, and that's as normal mm-hmm. as taking the bus. And then throw that all away <laughs> and replace it with this retarded, you know, sci-fi fantasy thing. And I'm like, oh, God damn it. Why? You know what Why? it kind of reminded me of? What did it kind of remind you of? Planet Zeist. <laughs> <laughs> it's, don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong, all you who haven't seen it, the Chronicles of Riddick, for all its flaws, is not that bad. Don't ever let anybody tell you that it is, because few are the movies that ever, ever reach that abyss of shit. But <laughs> in ter- in terms of pure nonsensical nunfuckery, yeah, just all of a sudden rooting this movie in the um in, in the intergalactic religion and and and, and all the prophecy and 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 super and supernatural and otherworldly otherworldliness all the all the all the religious overtones and and undertones and supertones and and boss tones and Bella Fleck and the Fleck tones um <laughs> one step beyond do 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 yeah it's it's just the the tone is is jarring to say yeah. the very least. It, it took me right out of the movie. Like, once I realized what... Because I, I looked at the Chronicles of Riddick, and I thought, okay, well, here... Well, well, if they're going off of what they've established in the first movie, here we have this man, you know, who for a price can probably be bought. Maybe he needs to buy his freedom, you know, seeing as he was a prisoner in the first movie. And, you know, and he's going to go on some sort of an adventure. I didn't think they would get right into air elementals and ghost armies and religious fanatics, and Jesus, Mary and Joseph. I, I was just, just, 
And prophecy. Why does every movie have to have a fucking prophecy? The, the, one of the funniest things I saw in, in terms of criticism of this movie is mm-hmm. uh, everything wrong with the Chronicles of Riddick, and they dinged the sin on this movie for, you know, uh, our star is a prophecy. There's a prophecy concerning our star being the one. Cliché. Yes. Yes. Here, here. <laughs> Dear um, science you know, fiction fantasy writers, leave the prophecies fucking out, okay? If if you have to, continually rewatch the Star Wars prequels until you learn better. No more prophecies. And you know what? In a very general sense, I get that they were trying to generally raise the stakes and the scope from the first movie. I get that. Here's the thing. Again, I'm going to go back to Alien. When Alien did that between the first movie and Aliens. The manner in which they went about it made sense in that universe. It was plausible within that within that reality, within that within that lore. Well, well, yeah. They just opened up. Still, they just opened up the world a little bit more. They didn't wholly invent a right. new one. Right. Exactly. In this game. Or not in this game. Well, in a sense, of what I'm speaking. Well, not, I'm not entirely wrong though. Um, this is more like you were to take the wonderful, all-conquering, beloved, virtuous Kansas City Royals, and right after winning the World Series, decide that the very next thing they would do would be play in the Super Bowl against the New England Patriots. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that's about the level of wait what that we're working with here. Ladies and gentlemen, your Kansas City Royals will now perform cats. <laughs> Dude, you have no idea how many front row seats I would buy for that. <laughs> because fucking now, Royals, baby. <laughs> now, now, we, now we've, I've just gone for the last few minutes, both of us, uh, talking about how up to this point we have this wildly ridiculous sort of sci-fi premise happening. And then the movie, um, they, they, they have this initial chase where the necromongers are coming to New Mecca, um, which is where Riddick is, and trying to find out why you know, there's, there's a bounty on his head. And there's a bounty on his head because um, they believe that he, Riddick, is a quote-unquote Aetherian, is a race of, I have to read this, a race of warriors long thought extinct and wants to know about his homeworld and if anyone other than himself is left. They believe that a Furian will, will, live, will, will uh, fulfill the prophecy of being the one to save them from the necromongers. And I'm sorry, even saying that out loud makes me want to throw shit at the computer. Okay. A race of warriors that happens to be called the Furians. Yes. Really? Who fucking this? What third grader? <laughs> so, um, so the the necromongers show up. They lay waste to New Mecca. Uh, Vin, they, they try to kill Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel ends up um, surrendering to another group of to another group of mercenaries who are trying to collect a bounty on his head by bringing him back to prison, um, such as his lot in life. And so, to get away from the necromongers, he he surrenders and they get him off the planet. And then the movie changes. So you have Star Dude, right? Star Warrior is the first movie. And in the middle of Star Warrior, they they start an entirely new movie with a new plot and a new premise. Okay? 
called Escape from the Prison Planet, starring Vin Diesel. And they bring him to this. They bring him to this uh, prison world, and the whole thing is about the whole like a long needed scene where you really never leave that that scene that uh, that area is him trying to get off this this prison planet. Along the way, uh, he reconnects with Jack, who is now Kira, all grown up. Um, they you know they, they mesh with some other prisoners. And uh, before the sun comes up and can scorch the earth, they try to get off the planet. Uh, they, they nearly get the job done, uh, and then, then the necromongers show back up again. Uh, they take Kira. Lots of people die. And um, one of them tur- turncoats on the necromongers and says, uh, you know, go, go, go kill those people. <laughs> go, go get them. And so our hero leaves and goes and does that. And he shows up on the Necromonger ship. They, uh, there's a uh, mortal combat ensues. He kills the king, or whatever the fuck he is, and uh, he becomes the he becomes the leader of the Necromongers. I know I'm leaving some stuff out, but that's basically how the third act goes. This so is the we got in a long time. Crematoria and Hellion Prime and. <laughs> and and the necroma. Is it, am I the only one feeling that they were really trying just a little bit too hard with these names? Well, it was like it, this, this one feels like another one where they just sort of sat around like, what's cool? What are people? It's 2004. What are people into? Aren't goths? Goths are cool, right? Yeah, goths are like goths are into uh, are into you know black and witches and necro and. It was like like that's what they came up with. Okay, well we need a planet to call the place of warriors. Uh, well, warriors are angry, right? They're even furious. How about furious? Furious. <laughs> God, so stupid. So, here's what I said to Sean. I said this movie flows like like an intern had two scripts in his hand. One was uh, was a story about a guy stopping. Uh, a space army from conquering the universe. And another was about a guy escaping from a, pr- a prison planet. And, and the intern tripped over his own two feet. Both scripts went up in the air, fell down, and uh, the intern sort of put all the papers back together in any order that, you know, that, that he could and quickly just like, handed one giant script to his boss, the producer. And the boss just read it. It was like, this is marvelous. Make this movie. And that's what they made. They made, like... A half of one movie and a half of another movie, and just jammed them together. This feels like peanut butter and mustard on a on a poppy seed bait. It's just it, it tonally, it, it's it's just dysfunctional and it's boring. On top of it, the the color palette for this thing, it's much like the names. It was like, hey, let's see if we can shoot the whole fucking thing in gray. How does that sound? Is that cool? You know, not. Let's let's. What if what if as a, as a color palette, as sort of a theme, we just go with Seattle on a rainy day? Is that cool? Is that all right? My God, this is. I mean, well, pitch black was not exactly you know rainbow bright or My Little Pony in terms of color palettes. It was still interesting. The it, in a, in a minimalist sense. Uh, the movie was interesting to look at, especially with the way it was directed. This thing, they were trying to go for, like, 
Buck Rogers or Star Wars or Flash Gordon. Only they were like, let's not do it with any kind of color or anything interesting. <laughs> let's make everything gray and grim and shitty looking. Well, there's let's score it up with a bunch of gobbledygook. Well, you're not entirely wrong with that assessment, actually. You see, you're right. It is a different kind of movie. It's not alien. It definitely does have a little more of, like you said, a Buck Rogers, Star Trek, Flash Gordon motif to it. And that is in part because of four little characters. PG-13. What was released into theaters to capitalize on capitalize on the surprising cult popularity of Pitch Black was toned down to be accessible for all audiences. Hence, we don't really get to see all that much of Riddick being Riddick or all of the atmosphere and visuals that everybody loved about Pitch Black. Everything has, everything has to be just, just sanitized enough to get in under the MPAA's line. And a lot of it just comes off as trying too hard to color inside those lines when really those lines never should have been there in the first place. Had it gone gone unrated and everybody been given a little more leeway with the tone, who knows? We might have gotten something a little bit different. Unfortunately, we got what we got. There was potential with both versions of this movie. Well, I'm not a huge fan of the sci-fi fantasy part of this, but I, like, I hate the Necromonger stuff. A, a couple of rewrites and some tightening up if they had just gone with that and, and lose the fucking prophecy thing. Why can't he Why can't he just be the hero we need? Um, you know, the, the one man willing to stand up against the Nazis. Why can't it just be that? Right? Has to, he, he has to be fucking Anakin Skywalker, too. Um, but... There was potential with that, even though it wasn't my favorite part of the movie. I could at least see there's a movie there. It just it needed some it needed some shaping. They needed to get rid of the gobbledygook. Um, they needed to you know when the one guy uh, um, Zaco, what the hell the his oh Carl Urban, um, you know mm-hmm. Carl Urban um is being is being pushed by Sandy Newton to sort of turn against the necromongers. If that had been fleshed out a little bit better, um and there had been, you know, some more stuff with Vin Diesel directly dealing with them for the for the most part of the movie, I, I that that's that's probably fine. There's also a better movie I thought with him just escaping from the prison. You know, I like the, mm-hmm. the, I like the idea of um, and I think it plays, I think the idea of the sun rising and it going from negative 300 to 700 degrees in seconds, uh, you know, and baking the planet, I thought that was an interesting idea. And if they had played it a little bit more apocalyptically, you know, like, well, this planet's been X, Y, Z for the, you know, for, for years now, but it's sort of reaching the end of its line. And so when the sun rises in this particular cycle, this planet's just going to fucking burn up. And nothing left on it's going to be going to be alive, and so you have you know the people on the prison planet sort of evacuating, and the prison they're just leaving the prisoners behind, and so it's a race against the clock to get the hell off this planet again. And instead of monsters, now they're trying to get it. Now, now they're now they're outrunning the sun. I, I, I would have thought that was an interesting movie. Um, I, I think that there was fun to be had there with Riddick, and you know, and in a, in a vast uh, 
vast uh, uh, sundry, you know, different kinds of prisoners, you know, uh, some that are, you know, that are trying to get all stabby with him and those that are following him. And I, they, there was a movie to be had there. But it's like just as soon as they get started in a good direction, it, it changes shifts again to the other thing. And it's like, okay, now you're telling two different movies. You're telling two different stories, and you're not telling either one very well. And I really, and the last thing I'm going to say about this, you've got some stuff that you want to talk about. I fucking hated Vin Diesel in this movie. They turned, mm. they turned a guy who, and I'm not talking about his performance, but the character was stupid. They took a guy who all he was in the first movie was a beefy criminal. His only superpower was he could see in the dark. That was it. He wasn't Captain America. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a Batman. He didn't have, you know, super ninja abilities. He's just a strong guy. And they t- and they put him in this movie, and suddenly he can take out armies of people all at once. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, you know, he's fighting everybody like, you know, like he's Captain America, and I'm just bored as shit by it. I, and, I, and I was like, why did you... So he went from like a, a fairly normal guy to a warrior, you know, a warrior race, a, you know, a, a born warrior guy. And I'm like, ugh. You want to talk about like like this? This should have been called Chronicles of Cliches because that's all it was. It was one cliche after another, and I, and that's why like it, this movie was so frustrating because I'm watching it and it had so much potential and it just gets wasted on nonsense. The movie also happens. The movie also happens to be one of the few times when, in fact, it's the only one I can think of when Vin Diesel really makes this one mistake, and that is the fact. And I attribute this to maybe him getting a little bit grandiose now that he was also taking over as a producer, with the fact that he's not a hero. He shouldn't be. He's an anti-hero. In the first movie. He's not really fighting for anybody. I mean, granted, he has a little bit of a bout of conscience and decides to save the people around him, but for the most part, he just wants to escape with his own skin fully in, fully intact and not graded over another alien salad. <laughs> in this case, he's made into, well, like you said, a warrior, a soldier, somebody who fights for a greater cause. That's not who he is. Look, if we're to put it into wrestling terms, for example, he's not John Cena. He's not even Randy Orton. He's Jake the Snake Roberts. He's Stone Cold Steve Austin. He's somebody that doesn't really necessarily do anything different between when he's a good guy or a bad guy, except that he's all of a sudden doing the same shit to people that we don't like. That's all there is to it. He's just doing it to other to other bad people, and that's all that he's supposed to be. Now, all of a sudden, he's more or less some kind of bastion of virtue. It honestly kind of sucks the fun out of him. I don't know if that was Vin maybe deciding that he wanted to have a little fun with his creative con- control and make Riddick into something more or it was just something that perhaps sounded good on paper and didn't play out so well but the reality along with the fact that they were they were forced to be way too restrained with the PG-13 rating 
it really just casts a damper on what's otherwise a otherwise an intergalactic sword and sandals concept with a lot of potential that never really went realized. Yeah, I I really hated this movie. <laughs> to be honest, it, it, it was it's very jarring to go from really liking one movie in a um, in a franchise and immediately going to the next movie sort of marathoning through these as I did. And it's just like, okay, this is a really great movie. I'm really interested in seeing how they're going to handle this. And it's like, you know, like opening presents under a Christmas tree. You get the first present. Like, oh, my God, it's exactly what I wanted. Thank you, Santa. And then, you know, it's like, I can't. Like, you can only get better, right? And they hand you the next box, and it's a pile of shit. Like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Quit quit toying with my emotions. Um... (laughs) Yeah, I this is this is crap, and and unbelievably, people. I don't understand what people like about this movie. I know, I know um, it's a shit in the theater, but uh, like I said, it had a second life on DVD. And for the life of me, I don't understand why. Like, I know rot, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got like a twenty uh, critical reception, twenty nine percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but that's from the critics. Um, I don't. I, I I gotta look on like Cinema Score to see like what real people thought of the movie. Um, but uh, I, I. But if you know people really like enjoyed this thing, I would love to know. I almost take calls on this. I would love to know what, why, what people thought of it and why, because I, I don't get it. Well, the one thing you gotta remember too is it also had a big big old tie-in campaign. In fact, if I recall correctly, I don't think this was all that far removed from when The Matrix basically tried the same thing. You not only had a movie, but you had short films and comics and right. more that created, an, that created an entire world. And the other stories, well, as we talked about before we got on the well, no, actually, we talked about while we were on while we were on the air. <laughs> I'm getting them mixed up. Uh, the, the game Escape from Butcher Bay, by all accounts, one of the rare games that actually exceeded the movie it was based on. I mean, <laughs> it, it it sounds by and large like it was a much better story, and from the few gameplay bits of gameplay footage I've seen, it's exactly what it sounds like and what you described. It's Riddick trying to get out of trying to get out of prison. Uh, I want that. I want that story. I'll take it. Right. I gotta read these to you real quick. Vainly attempts to elevate Riddick into a mythological hero in a political intrigue contest meant to be Dune in action context, though it's a lot more like Stargate in crap context. <laughs> Let me guess, Andrew. No, Peter Canavis, uh Groucho reviews. Here's another one. Like the heat oh. on crematoria, little is fleshed out, but I suppose it really doesn't matter because wow, isn't really cool. Um, that's Todd Hirsch from Christianity Today. And the last one I'll read here is uh, the plot. Of, the plot of Chronicles of Riddick could properly be understood only after watching DVD extras. <laughs> So 29% from the critics, who uh, the average rating was a 4 out of 10, 
115 rotten reviews total. Uh, however, the audience score was 65%. Now, here's where it's funny because um, uh, Robert Winfrey hit me to this site, and he was like, oh, this is a really good site for judging what, what the fans thought of something. And I was like, okay, I'll check this out. It's a cinema score. And it was funny because, like, we looked at a couple of things, and I was like, do you realize that on cinema score, the Transformers movies all have A's, right? Like, you know, A, A minus, A plus. And he, <laughs> he's just like, yeah, I don't know what to tell you about that. But uh, the cinema score for the Chronicles of Riddick is, uh, let's see here, uh, B, this fucking movie. Kind of big. I don't want to live here anymore. It, it's a it's a C at best. It's a it's a C movie. Um, by comparison, Gem and the Holograms got a B plus. All right. So anyway. The <laughs> fuck. Yeah. Exactly. We had about fifteen minutes left. Um, in the interest of fairness and time, I was not able to see Riddick. My plan was to watch it. Uh, today, and due to elements outside of my control, none of your beeswax, um, I was not able to see Riddick. I read the wiki. I honestly don't have anything to say about it. From what I understand, it's the same. It was like, well, we got out of, <laughs> we got a little crazy with the Chronicles of Riddick. Let's let, let's get back to basics and basically tell the same story yeah. all over again with with Riddick. So I'm going to throw it to you, Sean, to kind of give us the 50 to 100 words or less on this thing, and then uh, we shall call it a call it a show. Well, that's really about the best way to put it, is it's a return to form. Namely, in the fact that, for one thing, it's R-rated again, which is a bigger step in the right direction than you would actually think it is. It's a bit of a continuation of the Chronicles of Riddick, but the really interesting thing about it is the weird-ass way that this damn thing actually came about. And that is that Universal really had no interest in making another Riddick movie. None whatsoever. Not after the previous movie, by all accounts, just barely made its budget back. Well, then they handed Vin Diesel a little bit of a bargaining chip. You see, (laughs) they happened to have another franchise that had also gone straight down the shitter after three movies. And Vin happened to have him a little bit of an idea for how they could revive it. However, to do that, they needed Vin to come in and shoot just a few seconds of footage. So, his deal was, okay, get or leave it. Yes, I will come in and shoot your final frame of the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift as the racer who has ravaged all of Asia. Eh. In my in my super duper street racer car. In exchange, you give me the rights to the Riddick franchise and the character. And so it happened. He got the rights. Got the rights back. He and David Tui got Tui got to work. And by April 2010, there was a first copy of the Riddick screenplay floating floating around on the interwebs. And surprisingly, while it didn't really set the world on fi- on fire either, thirty-eight million dollar budget, ninety-eight point three million dollar take, 
and a great big old following on home video, which means that Universal supposedly now has an interest in eventually making two more movies to round out the franchise. How does it happen? How do we get three movies with really, by all accounts, a fairly unremarkable anti-hero that's been creatively thrown screaming off the rails? Well, long story short, you have a mo- you have three movies that really didn't look necessarily like anything that people were clamoring to spend ten bucks a pop at the time to see in theaters, but by the time they came out on video, all of a sudden, kicking back on the couch for a couple for a couple bucks, what looked to be some decent sci-fi sounded much more reasonable. This being the age of the internet and the internet being what it is, people started clamoring around loving these movies, and, well, a franchise was born. Stranger things have happened. <laughs> hey, ask Greg Sestero. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, any last words about uh, Riddick? What did you think of the movie overall? It was all right. It's worth seeing if you really, really love the character, but can I recommend it? Eh, not to anybody except an absolute Vin Diesel fanatic. <laughs> are there Vin Diesel fanatics out there? I mean, really, sure are there people be... out there that hey, are just hey, like, oh my God. I'm... I, my I'm sure favorite actor ever, Vin Diesel. I'm sure there might be one, and he might be listening. Oh. Be nice. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> Please, enjoy your Vin Diesel. Just let me stop you. <laughs> um, okay. So, well, with that said, just to sort of wrap things up here and get into plugs and talk about the schedule and all that, um... Honestly, watch the, my, my opinion is watch the first one and then just forget about the next two. There's, there's no point. It's just, it, it's, it's uh, really, Chronicles of Riddick are not worth your time. It's not a fun movie to look at. It's, it's, a, it's a convoluted mess of a story. And, you know, if you're like me and, and you, you know, and, and you really like the first movie, the second one doesn't know justice. And if you're going to watch the third one, don't bother. Just watch the first one again. It's a much better movie. Um, so we have one more show left before the end of the year, and that is The Mighty Ducks. And that will be, mm-hmm. I believe, the first week of December. I'm bringing up the schedule now. We'll take you to Jabba now. Um, that'll be December 3rd, and that'll be it for the year. And now, Sean, how do you want to do this? Uh, January will be here before you know it, and I've already started plugging in dates. Uh, mm-hmm. I have December, I have January 7th as our first show back. Um, I have it as Lord of the Rings, and then on the 21st, The Hobbit. Do you want me to now? Do you want to keep that order, or do you want me to reverse it? Okay, r- run the order by me one more time again. Lord of the Rings on the 7th, and on the 21st, The Hobbit. Hmm. You know what? As much as 
it, as much as it makes more logical sense to do it in story order, I think it's more appropriate since we're actually talking about the franchise and the filmmaking process to talk about them in the order they were made to get a proper perspective on them. And, well, and like and like you and like you said, um, because it'll also make Peter Jackson's uh, hilarious admissions about the Hobbit trilogy uh, that much more that much more apropos. So, okay, I think we should do I think we should do Lord of the Rings first and then the Hobbit. Okay, so right now um, January is looking like Lord of the Rings January seventh. Um, there may or may not be a show on the 14th. Uh, Metal Hammer of Doom may not be coming back until the end of January. Um, depends on what depends on whether or not Robert and I can agree on what on a retrospective to do. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll do the hot on the 21st. Um, right now on the schedule we have Megadeth Dystopia. We'll be reviewing on the Metal Hammer of Doom on January 28th. Um, we're going to go ahead and do back-to-back shows again next year. My plan is to try to do the is to try to do um, the Metal Hammer of Doom album reviews a little bit closer to when their uh, dropping where their drop date is, much like we do with the movie reviews. We usually do them a week out, uh, you know, a week after they've been released, the Wednesday after their Friday release. That is, so um, there may not always be. The, the usual trading off of, you know, one week this, next week that. So in this case, <laughs> still people into that I'm talking about, we have Megadeth Dystopia on January 28th, um, Aventasia Ghost Lights on February 4th, and then Long Road to Ruin will uh, have uh, our shows on February 9th, which will be the Shaft Trilogy, and then February 25th, Beverly Hills Cop, uh, trilogy as we celebrate Black History Month here on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. So I don't think we need to go any further than that because it's fucking November. But, <laughs> uh, that's what we have on the schedule so far. Um, we've got some big plans for next year, uh, you know, tie-ins with the forthcoming movies. We're going to look at the animated Dark Knight series um, the, the week of uh, Dawn of Justice. We're going to look at the... Uh, we're finally going to take on the uh, first three X-Men movies, the week of uh, X-Men Apocalypse. So some fun stuff. We've got, a, we've got a big list of movies, some stuff we didn't get to this year, some stuff I add, you know, more stuff that I added to the list, you know, trying to find some really interesting and fun ones for us to do, some modern ones, some, some old, some Smokey and the Bandit. Um, so uh, I'm excited. I think, uh, I think next year is going to be a good one. Hopefully well, well, you know, we don't have the hiatus issues that we normally have. Well, well, yeah. I mean, what I kind of like about these year-end shows is we finally reached the point where we've put so much prep time in that it's not – I don't want to say it's like we've checked out exactly, but it's like we kind of become a little more informal this time of year, and we're we're not so much – it's not that we're not trying to put on a good show. It's just that we kind of start really – letting fly with just with just kind of how tired we are and how much we need to really refresh our batteries. But I'm gl- I'm kind of glad that we've gotten the pressure off of some of the bigger franchises that we've done the first couple of years and now we can get into some more 
where we're thinking, okay, well, we're not doing something that's got a huge fandom, but it's something we can have fun talking about. Uh, even sure. kind of riff on it just a little bit. Uh, like I said, like like this Chronicle of the Riddick, I wouldn't have seen these movies otherwise if I weren't doing a podcast talking about them. And so I, that's kind of what I want to do with this podcast is, you know, open, continue to open up my horizons and look at, look at movies that I, you know, like uh, next year, for example, we're going to, we're going to do the hangover at some point. I'll figure out oh, where yeah, I'm scheduled yeah. to put that. And I've only seen the first hangover movie because I didn't feel I need to see the second two, but I've heard the second one is so bad. <laughs> it's just not even bad. It's just a really dark movie. And so, you know, this gives me an opportunity to actually to take a look at it and say, okay, well, what, what are we talking about here? What's going on in the world? Um, mm-hmm. In case people are wondering, uh, we're not reviewing the Hunger Games this year. Uh, that that's coming. That uh, came out tonight, the early release. You know, it'll be a proper release will be tomorrow, Friday. Mm-hmm. However, in 2016, Sean and I will actually review the entire Hunger Games film series once uh, Mockingjay comes to video. Mockingjay Part Two. So that'll be fun. I've never seen any of the Hunger Games movies. And I and I just didn't feel the need to do like we did with Bond and marathon the uh, the previous movies in time for this one. I'm like I'm letting this one go. I, else I, I I feel like I'm going to need to make a running joke out of how many how many people just to right to the heavens above just still scream to this day. Why watch the Hunger Games? Battle Royale is so much better. All they did was rip off Battle Royale. Why can't I just watch Battle Royale? (laughs) Sweet monkey tits. (laughs) Um, Oh, no, oh, no. Thing is like other thing. (laughs) Wah! So... Uh, with that being said, we got um, we got a peanuts review in the uh, in the archives uh, last week. Um, we also reviewed uh, Spectre, and um, Sean and I's last long road to ruin was the Daniel Bond, uh, Daniel Craig Bond series, where I screamed and yelled about Skyfall. I am alone in this <laughs> world. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, and then the the last metal hammer of Doom was, of course our best Metal Hammer of Doom ever in terms of quality and in terms of content because we reviewed the Limp Bizkit Greatest Hits. Just keep rolling, rolling, rolling. <laughs> you know what time it is. Um, in, less than a minute, in less than a minute of live time, Sean, um, you want to say your, your your final thoughts, hopes, and dreams, and plans? <laughs> I would like to buy the world of Coke and then a lot of insulin, diabetes. Uh, no, that's not that's not all I have to say. Um, uh, since we're down to the last couple shows, it's time for me to express some gratitude to everybody that downloads listens to us live, everybody on Stitcher, iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, everyone that listens. Uh, thank you, even if you're not particularly active on the Long Road to Ruin Facebook community. We just appreciate that in a greater sense that you take the time. Uh, we have a lot of fun ourselves bringing this to you, but we hope that we're giving you all a few laughs uh, a couple times a month or so. Uh, an extra special thank you, as always, to Benjamin J. Cologne, our absolutely super 
superb, just seemingly endlessly talented friend and title card artist. Uh, he's been a guest on a number of Rod Litchin Broadcasting Network podcasts, including uh, Source Material and Long Road to Ruin. Uh, he did a magnificent job on this episode's card, in which he, he basically just told me, well, I don't have much time to work with, but fortunately it's a franchise where I can just do a card with a whole lot of black. <laughs> and that he did. Uh, I highly recommend going to visit soulexo.com and following at soulexo on Twitter. That is in no small part because our good buddy, our good pal, our brilliant Da Vinci of title cards has expanded his repertoire recently. Uh, in addition to his usual sketchbook Saturday treats on social media, uh, he has now started doing commissions. Namely, he has got a great little project wherein he will use the magic of of his pencil to insert you, your friends, family members, whoever, onto the comic book cover of your choice from a variety of selections. We're talking from Assassin's Creed and Star Trek and Green Lantern all the way through through the greats like Spider-Man, Iron Man, Guardians of the Galaxy, Thor, and he's adding more selections all of the time. To learn more, uh, follow him on at SoulXO or go visit SoulXO.com today. Right now, great holiday gift ideas, but get your orders in orders in soon so we can give the man some time to work. Uh, as for myself, if you want to hit me up and chat some more about movies, music, TV, games, comics, the like, all your favorite geekeries, as well as right at the moment, uh, Phoenix Coyotes, Arizona. Sorry, I will get that one day. Arizona Coyotes hockey. You can find me these days on Facebook. I have two accounts. Do not request the one with the red and white CM Punk logo right now. That is my personal account, and it's about to be personal for a whole set of new reasons that are going that are going on behind the scene. Instead, go to the one that currently, with this being Mass Effect Month, is bearing Morden Solus as its avatar and shoot me a friend request and message with hashtag LRTR so that I know that you're hitting me up, not because you are a Nigerian prince who simply needs my Social Security and credit card numbers, but because you're actually a fan who just wants to chat. Otherwise, I have got a brand-new podcast that is going to be coming in February from the looks of it, if everything keeps the schedule. It's an all-purpose geek and nerd variety and news show featuring myself, my longtime good friend Jeremy Holsoff, and my even longer time just as gooder friend, me talk pretty, and Alberti, um, as well as a plethora of special guests, including some other favorites from the Rod Lutch and Broadcasting Network, Mark, Robert Winfrey, Robert Cooper, Cole Marentet, Jason Teasley. You never know who's going to show up. It's called The Power of Three, and it's going to be premiering in mid-February. Otherwise, that's it. Thank you all, as always, for for listening. And from the Fortress of Seanitude, this is Sean Comer reminding you to never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. 
All right, folks, uh, be sure to check out all the great podcasts on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. Uh, be well, be safe, and behave. And now, uh, a little insight into the minds of movie studios everywhere. Uh, good night. Yeah.